Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening at the beginning of a new week. I'm Alan Jones and you're watching ADH TV. I note today that Adelaide is aiming to shred its staid and stuffy reputation as the city of churches, with a new campaign urging 20 to 40 year olds to embrace South Australia as a place of creativity, excitement and opportunity. Well, look, I'll tell you something, no matter your age, I was in Adelaide at the weekend for the first time in a while. The city is already transformed. It struck me as having everything, a beautiful, beautiful place, but most importantly, a far cheaper standard of living. I kept on remarking to people that if you had your time over again, this would be a great place to live. But then I suppose in life, sometimes people are never satisfied, are they? Talking about living and housing, the jobless figure has gone up by 0.1 percentage points, 3.5% unemployed but still around the lowest level since 1974. Another 33,500 jobs were recorded in August, 9.5 million Australians in work, but we're told that more Australians are looking for work. Huh. There are many businesses that don't know where they're looking or have the handouts from coronavirus made us just too choosy. And with the unemployment figure going up, might this persuade the governor of the Reserve Bank, who's been wrong too often, to entitle him to keep his job, might he slow down his aggressive increases in interest rates? I suppose in this life, some people are grateful for small mercies. There was a by-election in Western Australia at the weekend and the Liberal Party got 27% of the vote. They immediately pronounced it as a good sign that, quote, people are seeing us as a real alternative, unquote. May I say to the Liberal leader, Dr Honey, if my maths are the same as yours, you have a fair way to go. In New South Wales, there's talk of the Roads Minister, Natalie Ward, you've never heard of her, considering a switch to the lower house at the March election. Natalie Ward, stop counting numbers and pandering to the factions to boost your own political fortunes. You're supposed to be the Minister for Roads and in New South Wales, and that includes Sydney, the roads are a disgrace. Obviously, you're not doing your job. Now, plenty on tonight. I'll have something further to say about the final stages in the latest Elizabethan chapter. And Harry and Megan pushed further down into the back carriages of the gravy train. Two things you keep writing to me about, the CRISPO and FAST, which is called energy policy. I spoke to Malcolm Roberts 12 days ago. Your response was astonishing. He's back on tonight. And you're also writing to me about the need for a royal commission into the coronavirus response. Gigi Foster is the Professor of Economics within the School of Economics at the University of New South Wales. She has recently released a book which addresses many of your concerns. You'll love it. And the corruption in government and public administration in Queensland. A further chapter on that has been written today. And for business that just nods its agreement to the stupidity of Chris Bowen's energy policy, why are you silent about the energy prices at the weekend. Plenty on. Stay with us. The innings has begun. I can guarantee we're going to make plenty of runs. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Well, at half past three this afternoon, our time, four and a half hours ago, the lying in state of Queen Elizabeth ended. Not before the public streaming in to pay their respects to the Queen watched in astonishment as all her grandchildren, including Prince William and Prince Harry, 
conducted a vigil by her coffin, the first by monarch's grandchildren. Dressed in full military uniform, the two brothers stood with heads bowed for 15 minutes to guard their grandmother's coffin, a day after the Queen's four children held their own vigil. In the last half hour, a short procession began to transport the coffin to Westminster Abbey on a 123-year-old gun carriage towed by 98 Royal Navy sailors in a tradition dating back to the funeral of Queen Victoria in 1901. King Charles III, members of the royal family and members of the King's household are following the coffin in a procession to Westminster Abbey, which takes about eight minutes. When the procession arrives at the west gate of the Abbey, the bearer party carries the coffin into the Abbey for the funeral service. The funeral is in three parts. The service at Westminster Abbey is at 11 a.m. London time, attended by world leaders, representatives of the Commonwealth, emergency service workers, representatives of the Queen's charity patronages and the wider royal family. The service will be conducted by the Dean of Westminster, David Hoyle, and include readings by the British Prime Minister Liz Truss and the Commonwealth Secretary General, Patricia Scotland. No eulogy from any family member. The sermon will be delivered by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who'll also deliver the commendation. The service will end with the sounding of the last post and a two minute silence. Monarchs from across the world have flown into London to pay their respects. But perhaps the most intriguing guest, certainly for those charged with filling out the invitations, is the 63-year-old King of Malaysia. Now his full name reads, you'll see this on the screen, Al-Sultan Abdullah Riyatuddin Al-Mustafa Bilashah Ibni Al-Mahum Sultan Haji Ahmad Shah Al-Mustah Inbillah. And then the post-nominals, as you've seen, come after all of that. So the funeral, as I said, is in three parts. The service in Westminster Abbey at 11 a.m. in the historic Westminster Abbey that can hold about 2,000 people. After the service, the coffin is returned to the gun carriage for the procession to Wellington Arch at the top of Hyde Park Corner at one o'clock. That is thought to take an hour. The royal family's grief will once more be on display as the king and other members of the royal family will walk behind the coffin. National Health Service staff will be given the honour of walking in front of the late Queen's coffin in recognition of their work during the pandemic. At Wellington Arch at approximately 10pm tonight our time, one o'clock in London, 1pm, the coffin is transferred then to a state hearse to travel to Windsor. By 1am our time, 4pm in London, the committal service begins in St George's Chapel. It'll be attended by Prime Ministers and Governors General from Commonwealth countries, including Anthony Albanese, the Queen's household, past and present, including personal staff who work or have worked on the private estates and senior members of the royal family. The coffin will sit for the last time on its catafalque, the imperial state crown, the orb and the scepter still on top of the coffin. The Dean of Windsor will conduct the service and hymns will be sung by the choirs of St George's Chapel. As the final sacred song dies away, Mark Appleby, the crown jeweller, will remove the crown, the orb and the scepter from the coffin, passed on one by one to the Dean of Windsor, who'll place them on the high altar. King Charles will then place the Queen's company camp colour of the Grenadier Guards on his mother's coffin. The last public sight of the Queen's coffin 
will be as it's lowered through an opening in the floor of St George's Chapel into the royal vault, where dozens of royal figures have been interred since the 15th century. It is where the Duke of Edinburgh lies since his funeral at the chapel on April 17 last year. But the late Queen will not remain in the vault, and nor will her late husband. As Tony Wright has splendidly revealed, and I quote, within hours of the last mourners departing, her coffin will be retrieved and taken into the little memorial chapel that she had built in 1969 at her direction as the final resting place of her father. There in this tiny, tiny sanctuary in the world's largest occupied castle, the late queen will be buried alongside her father, her mother and her sister Margaret, the Countess of Snowdon. There'll be no public coverage of this final stage. The remains of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, will be then moved into the miniature chapel to be reburied with his wife of almost 74 years. The chapel is so small that it's said only the Queen's children, four of them, will be able to attend. As Tony Wright relates, Princess Margaret, who died in 2002, and I quote Tony, quote, was so intent on being placed in the little chapel that she left orders, it was reported at the time, that she be cremated, knowing there would not be enough room for an extra coffin once Elizabeth and Philip's grave joined that of her father and the Queen Mother, unquote. The Queen's mother has been entombed with her late husband, George VI, the Queen's sister, Margaret's ashes alongside. And now as we speak, Queen Elizabeth II is on her way to the tiny family chapel where she joins her family. And within days, Prince Philip will be placed in the same resting place. And the rituals that we've seen since Elizabeth's death on September 8 will have ended. The final chapter of the latest Elizabethan era will be complete. Well, look, I'm sure you remember the interview I conducted only 12 days ago with Senator Malcolm Roberts, the Queensland One Nation Senator. The response has been astonishing. And I indicated to you at the time I would bring him back. This was on this immensely disturbing issue of energy policy and the damage that is being done to our economy and our future by basing energy policy on, ide on ideology, not reality. In that interview with Malcolm Roberts, I made the point that on the very day when I spoke to him, the Australian energy market operator was expressing concern about the premature closing of coal-fired power plants, delays in transmission projects, further delays in Snowy 2.0, and the lack of storage in the system, all of which add up to crisis with a capital C. Thermal coal prices have more than doubled since the start of this year. Thermal coal produces electricity. The world wants it, but fools like Chris Bowen have legislated to virtually prevent us from using it for our own benefit. Gas seems to be the new buzzword, such that liquid natural gas prices have skyrocketed four times higher than a year ago. But LNG is a fossil fuel, aren't they hypocrites? The stupidity is everywhere. I raised these issues privately with a senior Labor figure in the last couple of days. And I explained what I've explained to you. This 82% renewables by 2030 is rubbish. And we're facing a massive economic and energy crisis if we go down this path. This person high up in the Labor Party said to me, don't worry, Alan, Albo gets it. To which I said, what do you mean by that? And the answer was, he knows the importance of coal. And I said, really? 
I said, I believe that when he approves a high efficiency, low emission coal fired power station or several of them. Well, Malcolm Roberts with scholarship coming out of his ears and like Mark Latham does his homework, told us last time that 10 senators and members in the last parliament had stated or shown in writing that they have never received logical scientific evidence proving that carbon dioxide from human activity causes climate change and therefore needs to be cut. And many Labor, Liberal and National Party members have privately confided to Senator Roberts that there is no scientific basis for their party's climate and energy policies, but they remain silent. And I mentioned that the West Australian MP, Dennis Jensen, was a former CSIRO research scientist. In fact, at the time, he was the only scientist in the federal parliament. He repeatedly argued his disgust with CSIRO's betrayal of climate science and the CSIRO evolving into an unscientific, politicised climate advocacy group. Dr Dennis Jensen, Liberal, was in the parliament for 12 years, never ever got a Guernsey and eventually lost pre-selection because of his views, I would say differently because of his scholarship. You wanted Malcolm Roberts back to hear some common sense, you've got him. He's joined me again. Malcolm Roberts, thank you for your time. Just repeating, because this needs to be said again. There are people in the national parliament meant to represent us who argue that they've seen no proof that carbon dioxide from human activity causes climate change, but they remain silent. Correct. Pressure to conform with party power brokers and party policy, Alan, that's all it is. Well, tell us about Stegall. She came up to your office in 20, <laughs> Zali Stegall in 2021, to try to persuade you to vote for her proposed climate change legislation. She couldn't provide any logical scientific points showing the need for the bill, is that right? She was absolutely stunned, completely silent, speechless, Alan, had nothing to say. And then you asked Morrison's then Senate leader, Matthias Corman, for the logical scientific points to support climate and energy policies, and he couldn't answer your questions. No, in fact, what he said in his answer was that we have an obligation to fulfil our international commitments. And, and yet, you know, this is the basis for policy, which is costing Australian billions of dollars and will cost trillions of dollars in the economy eventually. And as you say, no Australian federal, state or territory government has provided the scientific basis for a mandate to push, much less pass, legislation cutting the production of carbon dioxide from human activity and therefore for, of course, coal. Correct, absolutely correct. They have never provided that evidence. They've never been able to specify the impact, never. I mean, every time I ask people, <laughs> well, I mean, it's a bit of a joke, really, uh, what's the percentage of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? They've got no idea. But I said, well, hang on, this is the thing that's causing the problem and you can't identify the quantum of carbon dioxide. So, I mean, no one has quantified, have they, the specific impact of carbon dioxide from human activity on any of these weather events. Correct, Alan, and that's fundamental. You just hit the nail on the head because before you can have a policy, before you can have legislation, you need to be able to quantify the effect. Otherwise, how the hell do you can you compare uh, any alternatives? How the hell can you do a cost-benefit analysis? How the hell can you even track progress? We are going down a rabbit, Warren, with nothing in our, in our, in our navigation. Nothing. Absolutely. And I mean, CSIRO have admitted to you, haven't they, that today's temperatures are not unprecedented. So they were relying on... Correct. Yeah, go on. 
Correct. They are not unprecedented. That's with CSIRO's words. And what's more, they confirmed in my first meeting with them back in 2016 that they have never said, never advised to anyone that carbon dioxide from human activity is a danger to humans. Never. Extraordinary. And then they admitted they'd never done due diligence on all the data that's, ro that's rolled out from external agencies. Correct. Not, they've never checked the Bureau of Meteorology's temperature data. Never checked. We have, and it's crap. So basically here we have CSIRO allowing politicians and journalists to misrepresent them, but they have never corrected them. Correct. They have never corrected the misrepresentations. And the media, the mouthpiece media, not your independent media, the mouthpiece media and the politicians have gutlessly pushed this agenda. Extraordinary. And big corporations as well. I mean, they line up as well. well absolutely silent. Big Chinese corporations, yes. state-owned Communist Party of China corporations. Yeah. Yeah. They're making, they, they, they produce 70 to 80%, sometimes 90% of the components of solar panels and wind turbines, Alan. And what are they doing? They're building coal-fired stage, power stations hand over fist because they want to keep their manufacturing in China while they send us the rubbish from the coal, solar panels and the, uh, and, the, and the wind turbines. And 17 internationally respected climate scientists from six nations, including Australia, and covering many disciplines of climate science and climatology, confirmed your Correct. conclusion that CSIRO has never presented logical scientific points needed as a basis of policy insights. Correct. They include people like John Christie, who used to be a yeah. uh, lead author in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that one of the top people on temperatures around the world. And he said they have never done that. Never, never provided any evidence for their, for their claims. Well, we've got a climate change bill now. It's gone through both houses of parliament. <laughs> You've said, Malcolm Roberts, Senator Malcolm Roberts has said, and you can tell by the way he speaks, he knows his stuff inside out because he's got an academic background that enables him to analyse all this. But you said it's the biggest change, and this is a big statement, to Australian lives that Parliament has ever considered. It's taking us back to the cave, caves, Alan, because the primacy of energy, the single thing that has taken us from millennia of scratching around in the dirt, being, being ravaged by famines and droughts and floods, is the ever-decreasing price in real terms of energy. Energy is what has given us our iPhones, has given us our, our communications, our transport, our planes, our, our spaceships. Energy, ever-increasing energy and reducing prices of energy has given us this remarkable revolution in just 170 years. And now they want to reverse that. And in fact, they have reversed it in the last two to three decades. Absolutely. Reversed human progress. Absolutely. And nothing in this climate change bill says how it will be achieved or what will be the cost <laughs> to Australia of reducing our carbon dioxide production and what impact it'll have on global temperatures. I can't tell you that. Sign a blank they check. They can't, because as you... As you, exactly. And as you pointed out, the fundamental basis for any policy or any legislation must be the quantified specific effect of carbon dioxide from human activity on temperatures or rainfall or snowfall or droughts or floods or, or storms. But they have never done that, which means they can never come up with any estimate of what will happen as a result of cutting. They can never do any cost benefit analysis. They can never do any tracking of progress. There is no accountability. And sadly, this is reflection on Parliament under both governments both Liberal, Labor and, and National, both Liberal, National and Labor uh, for the last few decades. They don't make decisions based on data. Absolutely. And yet this is a policy which will have a massive impact. We often talk about electricity and energy. What about transport and agriculture? 
Alan, what about manufacturing? What manufacturing. about defence when we can't when we can't make our own uh, own ammunitions? When we can't make our own uh, ships and 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 planes? What happens when we when we can't even support our troops in in an engagement? What happens when we when we lose our, all of our manufacturing? The Chinese are, are smart people. And they're treating us like mugs because we are mugs, Alan. They are building coal-fired power stations because that's the cheapest form of power there is. And while they're still, and they're using that coal-fired energy to make solar panels and wind turbines, which they export to us, then we subsidise their installation, we subsidise their ongoing running costs, and they're destroying our power prices. They're lifting them through the roof. So what happens as a result? Because the number one cost component for manufacturing is electricity. It's no longer labour. It's electricity. So when we destroy our, our, our electricity because of the high prices of electricity, we destroy our manufacturing. We're destroying our agriculture. Farmers are in, in the last drought, Alan, told me in North Queensland, Central Queensland, Southern Queensland, they would not irrigate their fodder crops. In a time of drought, they would not, they would not produce fodder because the price of pumping electri electricity for pumping water was too prohibitive. Mm. I mean, it's, this is affecting our food. It's yeah, affecting well, our processing. It's affecting our manufacturing. Yeah. Well, I've called it the National Economic Suicide Note. I've said that for years and years and years, and that's being borne out. Just before you go, do we learn nothing from Texas and Germany and Europe? <laughs> well, look at California. Just yeah. last week, they yep. said, I think it was Tuesday, they said, uh, we want to have no, we want to have only electric vehicles by 2030. Two days later, just two days later, Alan, they were saying, by the way, if you've got an electric car, electric vehicle, you may have trouble charging it during the next coming period because of, because we'll be having shortages of electricity. This is insane. They're going to dramatically increase the prices of electricity even further because they'll be adding increased demand, anywhere from 30% to 100% increased demand because of cars mm. needing to be charged. This is insane. It is insane. Look, we'll have to get you back to just talk about that specific issue about electric vehicles. But just for tonight, can we just finish on this point? This is Senator Malcolm Roberts. You can tell by listening to him, he's done his homework. And you are saying to our viewers, not a single politician can say what measurable impact these emissions reduction policies will have on any aspect of climate or weather. Correct. And what's more, I asked for evidence from, for this in the, in the debate last, last week in the committee stage, sorry, the week before, and Senator McAllister, who's pushing this through the Senate, she's the assistant minister in charge yeah. of this, she gave me 20 papers. Not one of them has any evidence. And what's more, Alan, the papers are titled things like this, ecological responses to recent climate change. <laughs> this is the result of, this is not the cause, a globally coherent fingerprint of climate change impacts across natural systems. This is the, this is the presumed result, but get this. This is one of her evidence. This is part of her evidence biological response to climate change on a tropical mountain. She does not understand cause <laughs> no, and effect, no, let alone no, data. No idea, Malcolm. We'll leave it there. We'll have you back, don't worry. We'll have you back. When you're sick of saying it, out there they're starting to hear it. Good to talk to you, my friend. There he is. Outstanding, Thank isn't you, he? Alan. Senator Malcolm Roberts, outstanding stuff. And we will have him back and talk to him again. There are some interesting sidelights to what is going on in London as I speak to you. There was considerable conjecture about what role would be played by nine-year-old Prince George, second in line to the throne behind his father, Prince William. It's said that Prince George has been schooled to attend the hour-long state funeral service at Westminster Abbey, where, as I've already said, 2,000 dignitaries are attending the biggest peacetime gathering 
for a generation. It has been confirmed earlier today that Prince George and the seven-year-old Princess Charlotte will walk behind the coffin in the procession from Westminster Hall to Westminster Abbey, which takes about eight minutes. Interestingly, Prince William had told a well-wisher in the last week that Prince George had understood that William's grandmother had died, that's George's great-grandmother, but his younger siblings, Charlotte and Louis, less so. Now it's been confirmed at the 11th hour that Prince George and Princess Charlotte will walk from Westminster Hall to Westminster Abbey. The Order of Service book, uh, booklet released earlier this morning, London time, prompts the question, how much trouble lies ahead with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle? Harry has completed a memoir, which allegedly casts a long shadow over the royal family and fears that it will be used to settle scores. It's published by Penguin Random House, was originally scheduled for release in quote unquote late 2022, and was expected to appear around Thanksgiving in time to cash in on the Christmas market. Of course, in the rather grubby money for everything world that Harry and Miss Markle seem to inhabit these days, there is big money in this memoir. But the death of Queen Elizabeth has thrown the publication and publicity plans into turmoil. So there is talk that the memoir may not be published until next year. The manuscript has been ghostwritten by an American and it's supposed to be already finished. Given the death of the Queen, there's talk that the book will probably have to be updated and additional chapters written. No members of the royal family, their aides or lawyers have had sight of the book in any form. Neither have they been informed of when it's due to be published. The bad blood between the new brothers is such that apparently Harry didn't even tell William he was coming to Britain for a series of charity engagements. William and Kate allegedly found out via media reports. Through all the ceremonies of the last week, except the vigil, Prince Harry has not been permitted to wear military uniform because he was not a working royal. That has further been further confirmed with the release of the Order of Service booklet today or this morning, where amongst royalty walking behind the Queen's coffin from Westminster Hall to Westminster Abbey, Harry and Meghan are well down the list. Nonetheless, it's thought that the late Queen and the royal household wanted Prince George to be seen in such a globally televised event because he is seen as the future of the monarchy and being seen with King Charles and William helps in the nation's acceptance of him as a future king. There'll no doubt be historic pictures to record his presence, but it's not likely that Prince Harry will be the only one not sure about to whom he should speak amongst this gathering of thousands. The former King and Queen of Spain, Juan Carlos and Sofia have been invited. He's 84, she's 83, but they are estranged. He spends most of his time in self-imposed exile in Abu Dhabi. He abdicated in 2014 and a string of financial and personal scandals continue to hang over him. The invitation hasn't been kindly received in Spain. It'll be interesting to see what kind of reception they get because the present Spanish monarch is King Philippe, the son of Juan Carlos. But it's said that he and his queen Letitia will be making sure they are not seen at all costs with the father, Juan Carlos. And a lovely story about the young 21-year-old from the back blocks of Fiji, who'd moved to Inverness in northeast Scotland to serve in the armed forces. He found himself selected by his superiors to be a pallbearer to assist in the lifting of the Queen's coffin out of the hearse in Edinburgh last Sunday 
and walking it slowly through the doors of Holyrood House Palace. The Fijians are so deferential. And the 21-year-old Ben Tabuna said, quote, to be chosen to carry Her Majesty's casket is an honour, and I feel humbled to be bestowed with such a unique opportunity, unquote. Humility is one of the legacies the late Queen leaves with us, amongst many others like service and duty. It'd be no bad thing if we all picked up that baton. Look, if my correspondence is not about the energy mess we're in, and you've already heard us talk about that tonight, and the idiocy of this National Energy Minister relying on the vagaries of the weather, wind and solar to service our energy needs, if that isn't a source of anger, then the anger multiplies when people write to me about what they perceive to be the untruths told to them about coronavirus. And their concerns are many. Get vaccinated, they said, and all will be well. So they got vaccinated. Then they were told, get vaccinated again, and all will be well. Then they were told, oh, get a booster, and all will be well, and so it went on. Then we were told that the testings were free to find out if you had it. Just imagine how sick you must be if you have to be tested to find out if you're sick. But we're then told the tests were free when nothing is free. Then we were told the vaccinations were free. Then the boosters were free. Pharmaceutical companies just thought all their Christmases had come at once. But we have never been told how much taxpayers paid to these pharmaceutical companies. Remember how we were told, listen to the science, but only the science that suited the government narrative. I mentioned way back in March 2020, so we could never say we weren't warned that 800 medical professionals from US universities wrote together, quote, Mandatory quarantine, regional lockdowns and travel bans are difficult to implement, can undermine public trust, have large societal costs and importantly, disproportionately affect the most vulnerable segments in our community. 2020. In January last year, a peer-reviewed article in the European Journal of Clinical Investigations by researchers from Stanford University showed that net harms exceeded net gains, and that at the time, almost half of the deaths in the UK were from non-COVID causes, such as cancelled operations, people dying from lockdown-induced causes like healthcare delays, and the economic and social consequences of the coronavirus response. At the time, I interviewed Professor Gigi Foster, a professor within the School of Economics at the University of New South Wales, a brave lady, saying the things that weren't fashionable, except that she at least had been very well educated and is a professor. The Economic Society of Australia in 2019 named her the Young Economist of the Year for her extensive research interests in behavioural economics. She wrote then that lockdowns have enormous human cost and that governments had plenty of time to realise that and factor those costs into their decision making, but they didn't. Well, now Professor Gigi Foster is the co-author of a recently released book, The Great COVID Panic. What happened, why, and what to do next? Professor Foster joins me. Gigi, thank you for your time. Many people writing to me would say that what to do next is call a royal commission into what happened <laughs> and why it happened and what costs have been the consequences. I mean, businesses have gone broke, haven't they? Children have lost years of schooling. The mental costs have been appalling and the social damage done by these persistent messages of fear are such that we'll be feeling 
the consequences, won't we, for many years to come? Absolutely. And that's exactly what myself and Sanjeev Sablock investigate in our newest book, which is about the cost of lockdowns. It's called Do Lockdowns and Border Closures Serve the Greater Good? That's what we were told at the time. But as you said, the government actually has never defended those policies using anything like what we used to think was was what they had to do to be responsible stewards of a society, which is to do a cost-benefit analysis, a policy evaluation. In terms of human welfare, do these policies actually work? And so we do this analysis and find that the costs of the lockdowns and border closures in Australia had costs that were roughly 68 times the possible benefits they could have had. And, and of course, we have to estimate those benefits based on what happened in countries that didn't have such restrictions. And there it was not COVID Armageddon, although you would, you know, perhaps believe so if you've been listening to the mainstream mm. airwaves in 2020 and 2021, when mm. Sweden was the world's punching bag. Yeah. Um, but in fact, there actually weren't that many deaths. And now in Australia, if you look at our COVID deaths, we've had more than 10,000. And that was about the number that I had estimated, even in August 2020, we might have suffered mm. if we hadn't had the lockdowns. Mm. And I'll, come, I'll come to that in a minute. But mm. one of the things that just struck me, and I don't think we can repeat this often enough about the book is, we now have a big new industry in this country, don't we? The fear industry. Absolutely. Fear is something we discuss a lot in the great COVID panic. Um, and it's something that is a very unique human emotion. It makes you focus on nothing but the feared item. And that can be very useful when you're actually being pursued by a tiger, but it can be very damaging if, in fact, you're led to believe that something is very fearful, mm. which really isn't mm. um, very fearsome. And so that's what happened in the case of COVID. And as you intimated, it's big moneyed interests big that have money, led the money. narrative. You know, and you see this lady that you're, you're looking and listening to now produced a draft cost benefit analysis for the Victorian Parliament, didn't you, back in 2020? Yes, that was August 2020. I was, I was invited to address the Parliament, and I did. And I basically gave them a sketch of what they should be doing to justify these draconian policies. And I had hoped naively that the government would take it up and, and write up a full cost-benefit analysis of their own. But of course, they didn't, which is why uh, Sanjeev Sablok and I wrote the book we have now just out with Connor Court Press. See, you talked in that draft about simple things. I've often talked about kids unable to have a sleepover with their friends. You've talked about the loss of, because that only comes once in a lifetime, the loss of happiness mm -hmm. due to loneliness from social isolation. Mm -hmm. I mean, people unable to get health care, mm -hmm. other than if you had coronavirus, then they die. The cost to our children and university students of disrupting their education. We'll never know the consequences of this in the immediate future. I mean, the economic costs of shutting down business. But we won't get a Royal Commission, even if that would so solve the problems, because every time government announced one of these initiatives, oppositions were dogged by fear and just not an agreement. Absolutely, and not just fear now, but also just genuine concern for their careers. Yeah. This policy, everything we've done here in Australia to supposedly combat COVID has not been about public health. It's been about politics and power. And, and we know Correct. what power does to people. I've studied power for 15 years. That's why I was in a good position at the start of this whole madness to actually see what was going on. You see, a lot of people in my discipline don't study power, loyalty, love, networks, those kinds of human dynamics that are quite quite difficult and, and hard to capture in a, in a simple theoretical model, um, which is, of course, what economists like to, to use to try see, to analyze the world. Yeah, see, I mean, in all those press conferences, I kept on saying over and over again, 
they were characterised by what we were not being told. I mean, I was told, oh, you can't say that, you can't say that. Mm -hmm. But in all that time, one statistic was constantly ignored and publicly, in a media sense, I was the only one making this comment, 99% of all cases were mild. Absolutely. Often actually 99.7. Now in Australia, Gigi, I was doing some homework today, we've had actually 14,764 deaths in 30 months. Yep. Right? That's 492 deaths a month. But in Australia, 470 people die every day. Absolutely. This is something I think I brought up on ABC Q&A at one stage, which yeah. had me on a few times, and there was kind of blank stares. Because, yes. again, people were only thinking about one thing. Yep. It's as though everything else that normally matters... The rubbish that they'd been fed. Absolutely. Yeah, right? I and mean, they just forgot. There was the, this collective amnesia about everything else. Yeah. The deaths from coronavirus have been 0.056% of our population. But... Gigi, we've trashed the economy. Mm -hmm. We've stolen every imaginable freedom, even the freedom to decide whether you should be vaccinated. What about these people who've lost their jobs for not being vaccinated? I spoke at a function in Adelaide at the weekend. Women came up to me crying. I'm yeah. unemployed. I've appealed to everyone. I've written here. I've written there. No one will listen to me. It's absolutely heartless. And, and that kind of damage is uh, very hard to recover from as a society. So I do think that we've done serious um, harm to people. And that's going to be with us, as you say, for a generation. And, and I do think, you know, it's criminal what has happened here. And, and we it are is. now seeing some legal minds in Australia bravely coming forward and thinking about how to actually tackle this problem. Um, but it's very difficult yeah. because, you know, there's not as much uh, legislative, uh, I suppose, gunpowder or ammunition that we can yeah. use here than in some other countries, including my country of birth, America, to, to try to fight back against encroachments on freedom. So that's see, a real challenge. Gigi, we had chief medical officers, I mean, <laughs> they weren't quote unquote experts, but they were on $8,000 a week telling whole cohorts in our suburbs how to survive on $750 and not one politician or public servant gave up a single dollar. It's a disgrace, isn't it? I mean, it's again, people in power will do almost anything that they can to hold on to power. I mean, they will kill their own family. They will lie, cheat, steal. And, and we've seen basically that in spades with an overlay of wrapping in the flag about public health and, and Australia and yada, yada, yada. And of course, accusing the other side of exactly what they have been guilty of. And that's been a very typical rhetorical tactic I've seen during this period, which mm. has really, really opened my eyes, actually. And there's two words that you won't hear out of the mouth of any government member. And those two words are excess deaths. Now, <laughs> excess deaths are deaths that basically, at the end of the day, these are deaths from all causes during a crisis above and beyond what we would have expected to see under normal conditions. Mm -hmm. Now, Gigi, modelling by The Economist magazine last year said there'd be seven to 13 million excess deaths never discussed. Yep, no, exactly. And excess deaths is a, it's not an incredibly easy concept because you have to have some idea of what you should expect. So you have to go back in time. You have to say, well, how many people died in 2018, 2019, previous years, and then compare that against how many people have died in a given year. But it is a more reliable way to actually gauge the impact of any health threat because inevitably cause of death is a, a difficult thing to determine. So when we say somebody has died of COVID, often it's not really of COVID, it's just with COVID. And if you look at actual 
actual deaths, it's very hard to fake whether somebody died. It may be easy to, yeah. you know, fudge with exactly what cause. But if you look at that, it, this just has not been a huge pandemic. And as That's you probably correct. know, most people who, who have died of COVID correct. have been older. The average age is yeah. somewhere in the 80s. Well, and, and it's sad. But comorbidities. It, yeah, comorbidities, exactly, with comorbidities. You know. And the other tragic thing is we haven't even thought and, and really seriously took, you know, looked at the data on early treatment in this country. That's correct. And, you, and that's a tragedy. You say in your book, we have accumulated a ginormous amount of debt and damaged the education of our children who've had their schooling disrupted. That will be with them their whole lives. We created really negative habits in a lot of our workers and we have babies and toddlers and small children who now think it's dangerous to go to the playground and play with their friends. We have damaged people and that damage counts. Gigi, it's good to talk to you and I recommend the book. It's an outstanding text. It's simply called The Great COVID Panic. What happened, why and what to do next? It's published by Connor Court. There it is there, well done. Published by Thank Connor you. Court. And this is the lady you've heard from and we'll talk to her often as well. She knows the stuff and she's not prepared to say what some people in government don't want to hear. Professor Gigi Foster. Gigi, thank you for your time. All the best in what you're doing. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for having me on. There she is, Professor Gigi, G-I-G-I Foster from the University of New South Wales. And there's the book. Hold it up again. There is the book. It's great. COVID. Second book here. This is Connor Court. This is Connor Court. There it is. <laughs> Connor Court Publishing. Thanks, Gigi. Thank you. There she is, Professor Gigi Foster. Apart from everything else, the one overriding comment that we have heard in the past week through all the shock and grief at the passing of Queen Elizabeth was the simple conclusion, don't the Poms do it well? And so it has been, and so it will be today. But closer to home, the picture is not so encouraging. Let's go north to Queensland. In June, the Queensland government announced a commission of inquiry into DNA testing at the state-run forensic laboratory. For months, the Queensland government has been under attack on what seems an obscure issue, DNA testing thresholds. The trouble is, this is anything but obscure. Now, as we all know these days, DNA testing is a crucial element in the criminal justice system. The argument in Queensland was that not all DNA samples were being fully tested due to a, quote, testing threshold. The police have argued that results could have been possible from additional testing. You might recall I mentioned the forensic biologist, Dr. Kirsty Wright, who ran the National Criminal Investigation DNA Database. She labelled what's been going on in Queensland as, quote, the biggest forensic disaster, unquote. She said, there is nothing anywhere in the world that's like this. And in terms of the scale, how many years have these issues gone on for? Now, this is the guts of it. She further said, quote, we're talking about potentially false acquittals wrongful convictions and really serious and violent offenders not being apprehended when they should have been and maybe given the opportunity to offend again. She said a full inquiry is needed to understand what has been happening inside the lab for how long it's been happening and what is needed to fix it, unquote. Well, I'll come to that in a moment, but what this means is there may be criminals out there in Queensland who were found not guilty because their DNA did not meet some testing threshold. The good news is under Queensland's double jeopardy provisions, a person who has been charged with a serious criminal offence and is acquitted by a jury can be charged a second time if new evidence emerges that was not available to prosecutors at the time. Well, the forensic biologist, Dr. Kirsty Wright, along with the opposition leader, David Christofulli, applied the screws to the Palaszczuk government and an inquiry was called 
to allegedly find out what has been happening in the state-run forensic laboratory. Well, we learned today that Anastasia Palaszczuk has been handed damning interim findings from this public inquiry investigating alleged negligence at Queensland's Forensic Crime Laboratory. This could affect thousands of unsolved cases. The Commissioner, Walter Sofronoff KC, has not revealed the contents of his report, but government sources have described it as damning with the potential for, and I quote, widespread implications on the state's criminal justice system, unquote. Now, the report in the hands of the Queensland Premier is thought to focus on a disturbing 2018 decision by the Health Department's laboratory to downgrade its procedures for testing samples from major crime, such as murders and rapes. Now, put bluntly, murderers and rapists could be on the loose. No one knows why the Health Department changed its procedures, but it's now being said that thousands of criminal cases could potentially be affected. Apparently, Sofronoff, with sweeping powers as the commissioner, has compelled 36 witness statements and has obtained 60,000 documents. This is an inquiry the Queensland government didn't want, except the Queensland police late last year discovered that DNA profiles could be generated in up to 66% of samples where the forensic crime laboratory initially claimed there was insufficient DNA for further processing. Now, it all gets a bit complicated for the layman, but what is understandable is that the forensic laboratory seem to be saying that to progress to DNA profiling, crime scene samples required the equivalent of at least 22 cells, but fewer than 10 cells can often produce a DNA profile. And in New South Wales, the detection limit is 11 cells. If the minimum amount of DNA is not met in the first two testing stages, the Queensland Forensic Crime Lab doesn't send samples on for profiling in the final two stages. So scientists then report insufficient DNA or no DNA detected to police and the case against a defendant may well fail. For example, last year, the lab reported to police that 583 samples related to sex offences had, quote, insufficient DNA for further processing. On the other hand, we've got to say many victims of this system may have been denied justice because DNA samples in their cases were never fully tested. There is a disturbing picture emerging in Queensland, and this report could result in the reopening of many cases. And if mistakes have been made, the government could be liable if those mistakes meant that people had suffered psychiatric injury because of them. And that's not all. You will recall that earlier this year, the Queensland Premier was forced to appoint Tony Fitzgerald, who headed a previous infamous, infamous corruption inquiry in Queensland 35 years ago, to sort out the mess of the Crime and Corruption Commission. Well, I've said before, who knows what's going on in Queensland, but there's a rank smell about public administration and government operations in that state. Early this year, the Queensland Integrity Commissioner, Dr Nikola Stepanov, resigned as Integrity Commissioner with sinister allegations of interference in her role. If Premier Palaszczuk is in possession of interim findings of this public inquiry, those findings must be made public immediately. Before we go, the saying is as old as it is accurate. There are three kinds of lies, lies, damned lies, and statistics. The propaganda from green media outlets about Australia's energy markets over the weekend demonstrates my point. Get this, yesterday, 
energy generators, as those producing electricity, were paid not to produce power due to negative prices. The former deputy editor of the Australian Financial Review and current editor of Renew Economy boasted, quote, wind and solar records tumble again as coal and fossil fuels hit another low, unquote. More propaganda. And according to the latest data from the Australian energy market operator, prices between 7am and 3pm, 7am and 3pm in New South Wales yesterday, averaged negative $47 per megawatt. But as the sun went down at peak time, prices skyrocketed to an average of $207 per megawatt between 5pm and 10pm, a massive 540% increase in a matter of hours. How can that be? Well, due to an oversupply of daytime solar, prices went negative. But this is far from a good thing. I understand this may be confusing, so bear with me. When the wind is blowing and the sun is shining, the power produced by Australia's wind turbines and solar panels goes straight into the grid. So we meet our renewable energy targets. However, when the wind stops blowing and the sun stops shining, our ageing coal-fired power plants and gas plants are forced to scale up rapidly, that's increased production, to keep the lights on. Now, the worst part, our coal and gas plants were designed to produce power at a fixed rate. They weren't designed to rapidly scale up and down to compensate for the unreliability of wind and solar. And this is why at about 5pm yesterday, power prices skyrocketed. The same time when everybody starts turning on the lights, cooking their dinner and switching on the telly. But it's not just a problem for households. Think of the impact on business. Unstable energy prices make producing steel and aluminium almost impossible. At some times during the day, prices are low enough to turn a profit. At other times of the day, prices are far too high. Just ask Alcoa. Now, Alcoa is one of Australia's largest aluminium manufacturers. The taxpayer is now paying Alcoa to turn off production when there's a shortage in power generation. Meanwhile, our power generators are withholding their supply of power because of low prices during the day. Sum that up. Our grid has never been more chaotic and solar and wind are to blame. Before our politicians became inflicted with green madness, we had cheap, stable energy. Now we've got unstable energy that's extremely cheap sometimes and unbelievably expensive at other times. And that, as I have repeatedly warned, is not sustainable, it's economic suicide. And you, the taxpayer, are picking up the tab to keep the whole system together. What a mess. That's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is coming up next. I'll see you tomorrow night at eight o'clock. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.